Today on Way Too Interested, I talked to my friend Rex Sorgatz about his fascination with deep fakes. Come join us, won't you? So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. That was the Gregory Brothers, and this is Way Too Interested, the new podcast where I, Gavin Purcell, talk to people that I'm interested in about things they can't stop thinking about. Then, in the second half of the show, my guest and I talk to an expert in that particular subject, and we do a deep dive. It's a show about curiosity, creativity, discovery, and more importantly, pursuing those little tiny things that end up being way, way, way more interesting than you ever expected. My name, as I said, is Gavin Purcell, and I've been interested in way too many things for way too long. I hope this is my opportunity to learn about a lot more stuff uh, that I don't know about, and I hope you do as well. Each week at the top of the show, I'm going to talk to my guests a little bit about their process for discovering new things, not just about the particular topic at hand. Everybody has a different way of learning and opening themselves to new ideas, and that is really interesting to me as well, and I want to kind of explore that with what we're doing. I'm a big believer in the idea that pursuing and following our interests makes us better people no matter what, and I hope that this show encourages you to do that, and I hope that you're able to learn a little bit about what subject matters we're talking about. Today, I'm very excited because my guest is an old friend of mine, Rex Sorgatz. Rex has been around the internet for quite a while. He and I met each other a long time ago, and here are three interesting facts about Rex. Number one. I discovered Rex and met him way back in the early 2000s through his excellent, excellent, very early to the game blog, Famoculus. He was very good at blogging and still is when he does it. He had a pretty nice uh, newsletter not that long ago called Rex that was out, but I hope he gets back to it. Number two, Rex wrote the very excellent book, The Encyclopedia of Misinformation, which is one of those books you can kind of open to any page and learn something new. It's also deep linked throughout. So reading is kind of like a little bit of choose your own adventure. It's almost, it's like as close to a web page experience as you can get. Uh, I encourage you to go buy the book. You'll hear us talk a little bit about it in the podcast, but go check it out. And then number three, at one point in our lives, both Rex and I prior, this is prior to the ubiquity of YouTube and corporations saying it was everything okay. Both Rex and I attempted to get the entirety of the Saturday Night Live catalog online. We got a ways down the road. Um, I pivoted off to work on the late night show and Rex stayed and worked on a little bit further, but unfortunately it never came to fruition. However, the design and the setup that Rex had made for that site was excellent. You'll never see it, but he did a fantastic job because that is his other job as he's an excellent web designer and developer. Okay, you can find Rex online at twitter.com slash rexsorgatz, his website Femoculus, which still is up. And for sure, go check out his book, The Encyclopedia of Misinformation. But for now, here is my interview with Rex Sorgatz and his choice of topic, Deep Fakes. Rex, welcome to Way Too Interested. Uh, This is the very first, legit very first recording that I have done for this show. And honestly, probably the first professional audio recording, I don't, professional might be too far, but the closest to professional audio recording that I've ever done. So uh, you're you're welcome. (laughs) Welcome for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining. I am super stoked. This is exciting to be the first of anything. Oh, great. Well, one of the biggest reasons I started this show, I think, is kind of some of the things that came out of a, of a place that I kind of discovered you, which was the kind of the mid-2000s blogosphere. Um, one of the things I loved about back then was just how you could kind of get lost 
on the internet for the first time in a weird way. Obviously, the internet had been around for a while, and I've been doing some sort of internet stuff for a very long time. But Filmoculus was a great place to kind of learn and discover about new things and other, you know, I just was tweeting with Anil Dash today or like Jason Cocky or all these different people from back then. But you kind of got going in that scene and it seems like a kind of a special thing. Like, what do you what do you attribute that kind of the specialness of, of that time to? Yeah, I mean, er, I'd say early 2000s is about the right time frame you're talking about. And blogs were just becoming a phenomena. Uh, the word had only been invented in like... 98, I think. And I was just a weird, curious kid in the Midwest who got fascinated by internet culture and I dove in and via opening a blog very early that was had a weird name and I could have named it any, I could have had like any domain at the time. Um, and instead I had to pick this weird word that people still can't pronounce right and don't understand what it means. Did I get it right? Is it Femoculus? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a microorganism that, it's a version of a coronavirus in a way. <laughs> it's a microorganism that consumes its own excrement for sustenance. Uh. And I thought, that's a great metaphor for the internet. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I've always just been, you know, generally interested in emerging internet culture. Great. And you wrote a book, um, which I also uh, want to talk a tiny bit about before we get into um, what topic we're going to talk about today. And the book is called The Encyclopedia of Misinformation, which is great. Everybody should go grab it. It's still there at Amazon, and it's, it's really fun read. It's actually kind of a... Do you know Uncle John's, the Uncle John's books at All Rex? Have we ever talked about this? Uncle John's Bathroom Reader? I do know those, yes. I like when people compare my book to bathroom readers. Well, <laughs> I will say this is the thing. Uncle John's Bathroom Reader is probably one of my favorite book series of all time. And I think it's just my brain is this, but it's like... The greatest thing about it is you open it up to any page and it's got like three different sizes of, of reads for however much you're going to spend in the bathroom. But each page is kind of this interesting thing. And one of the things I love about books like this is it's kind of that thing too, right? It's like you even say it in the intro, you can kind of open it to whatever page you want and kind of learn something different. But this book particularly is about misinformation, which will kind of lead into our topic a little bit. Why, why did you want to write about misinformation? Uh, well, I'd love to say that I was ahead of the time and I saw the emerging political moment. But I actually signed the book deal before the 2016 election. And when I signed the book deal, the world turned into chaos. Uh, our media environments suddenly were, were, you know, suspect and polluted. And uh, it was really hard to write because the topic just became huge. And uh, I don't think I've ever told this story. It was originally called the Encyclopedia of Fakery. And that was what it was sold as. And uh, we changed it to misinformation because the subject suddenly became more serious. But if you pick up the book, you can tell that there's like elements in it that are still jokey and fun. And yeah, like the, 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 the subject matter suddenly became serious. It's interesting. The thing that I want to talk about is something that did not make the book because it emerged just like weeks too later. And I actually asked the publisher if we could update it with just like one additional entry. Um, so the book is li literally an encyclopedia, I should say that, but the short entry is about just little, little interesting things. And in many ways, it's very bloggy. And yeah, so I tried to get the subject matter that we want, we're going to talk about into the book, but it just barely missed it. All right, so let's get into that. I'm going to do this with every one of my guests, and it's going to be super annoying, but I'm, ask, I'm going to ask you to say it in this exact way. I want you to say, I, state your name, am way too interested in blank. So this is going to be something I'm going to try with everybody, and we'll see how it goes, but I'm definitely forcing you to do it. <laughs> this is exciting. Uh, I, Rex Sergatz, 
am way too interested in deep fakes. Deep fakes. All right, great. I am very interested in deep fakes as well. Clearly, they have had a moment, and the moment continues based on a lot of the misinformation stuff we've talked about. Before we get too far into this, though, because I, I have a feeling that you know whoever's going to be listening to this podcast probably knows what they are. But just in case, can you give like a generic, you know, general definition of what a deep fake is? Uh, yeah, sure. It's it's really simple. It's, it's one of those things, too bad this is a podcast. Like it's one of those things to show, and then you go, oh yeah, that, that thing. It's simply really just fake face swapping. You've seen those videos probably where, like this famous one of Tom Cruise going around at this moment, where it really looks like him, and you you have some vague idea that there's some fancy technology that's that's come around in the past year to allow the creation of these and it's increasingly being used by Hollywood, but it's also interesting that there's like apps out there that you can use. And it's really run through culture pretty wildly in the past like 18 months or so. Yeah, one of the things that I find, um, those apps are really interesting because it's made it so much more widespread. It's become a much easier thing for people to do. I think in the beginning... When I first saw them, it was a little bit felt like, oh, this is like, you know, Hollywood graphics effects or not even Hollywood guys, but like people that spent a lot of time on their, you know, After Effects programs were able to do it. And now it just feels like it's pervading uh, a lot more. Do you remember the first time you heard about, the, I guess there's, because in me, in some ways there's like two different things. There's the term deep fake and there's what you would define as a deep fake. And I think they're intertwined in some ways. But what was the first time you heard about a deep fake or what deep fakes were? Yeah, the first place, I'm a creature of the weird parts of the internet and spend vastly too much time on Reddit. And uh, because of that, I discover subreddits really early that are weird and interesting. And one of them was called Deepfake. And it has like, it's just such an interesting word into itself, right? Like, it sounds mysterious. And I remember going to it and there were videos in it. And if I remember right, the person who was producing the content for it had actually coined the term, and I could be wrong about that. That might be a good question for our expert. There were videos, and the first, I'm pretty sure the first one I saw was porn, because it was Reddit, and that's the internet. And I think the canonical first example is a video of the actress Daisy Ridley. Her face is lifted up and put on some porn scene. The first time you see it, it's instantly controversial and weird. And the thing that really is remarkable about it is like how realistic they look. And whoever was doing these first ones, you immediately knew someone had mastered some technique and, and the, the world instantly felt different because of it. What's interesting to me is how we've been seeing this in movies and TV kind of forever, right? In some form or another. I mean, you think I think about Forrest Gump or one of those old movies where they've digitally placed somebody into something. Or, you know, we now have more recent experiences of, you know, seeing much more significant versions of this, like in The Irishman or different places like that. But but what about this made it different? It, it, do you think it had to do with the fact that it was done by an anon anonymous person and that it felt like it was able to be done by somebody rather than like a giant army of people? Yeah, it was in instantly the, like the democratization of the whole thing that uh, some anonymous person and seemingly anyone, because that was the sort of hidden promise of the whole thing was that seemingly anyone could now make these and that it wasn't just CGI factories in Hollywood that, you know, because there were examples in Hollywood of Hollywood doing this. Probably the most famous one is 
in Rogue One, they de-age Carrie Fisher. And they also bring back um, the actor uh, Peter Cushing, who had died. I think it was like 39 la- years later, he was playing himself again. We've heard word of rumors circulating through the city. Apparently, you've lost a rather talkative cargo pilot. If the Senate gets wind of our project, countless systems will flock to the rebellion. That's kind of weird cultural moment for everyone to experience this like person who's dead now back on the screen. And that happened right before the deepfakes started to emerge. And so I think in a way you could say like Hollywood was priming us for this moment where everything could suddenly, faces became suspect and anyone could be anyone. So that was the interesting thing was that suddenly we were in a moment where anyone could make these and it felt freaky. Yeah. You know what I remember as my kind of oh shit moment in the world of deepfakes? I, I had the same experience. I think I saw it on Reddit and I remember it becoming a pretty big deal. But there was the there was the video that BuzzFeed made. I don't know if you remember this, where they had Barack Obama doing a speech, but then what you heard was not Barack Obama's voice, and he was making he was using different words and they were making the mouth work perfectly. It looked exactly like Obama, but when you listened a little bit closer, it was Jordan Peele and you could hear Jordan Peele's slight impression of it. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. So, uh, for instance, they could have me say things like, uh, I don't know, uh, Killmonger was right or uh, Ben Carson is in the sunken place. Or, how about this, simply, President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. And that was my moment of like, wow, well, this is interesting because unlike what, obviously, taking somebody's identity and putting them into something as disturbing as porn is, is horrifying, but then watching the leader of the free world at the time, or, or you know, the president of the United States kind of have it done to them, that was when it made it like more... It almost felt like slightly dangerous to me because of like what would have been able to do. Um, did you? What was your experience watching that Obama one? Yeah, I think it was BuzzFeed who did it, and they were pretty early. I think I believe that was like the first major story about it. Although I think Nick Bilton at Vanity Fair wrote an early story about it too. But that's was one of the interesting things is the media jumped on it. It's a great media story, right? Like yeah. you know everything is suspect and the the end is nigh. And and I think. Most normal people saw it for the first time and also had the same reaction, which was, oh, my God, this is going to lead to nuclear war. There was always like the there was an instant kind of reaction to it that came up with doomsday scenarios. And with the administration in office that we had, one could imagine somebody releasing a deep fake of, you know, the leader of North Korea saying that he was going to bomb America and suddenly the no one realizes it's a deep fake and we retaliate and you know and you could come you could come up with scenarios where it just seemed like the worst possible thing that could happen and at the same time they're like while that's going on like the the subreddit that i'm obsessed with is like going crazy with like putting post malone in into the office as michael scott and like everything else in the while that's going on everyone's like doing all these goofy things with it and uh, i think it's one of the most interesting things about it is like the doomsday scenario never turned out there was a lot of warnings before the 2020 election of the same kind of thing was going to happen that there was somebody's going to release a deep fake of biden and no one's going to know it's not really him and there was all the scare about it and none of that came to fruition really like there was a couple things that were like a little controversial but really you know, it's 
it turned out to not be all of the bad stuff that we thought was coming. And so I, I think that's one of the things I've, I'm really interested in with this. And one of the other things I think about with deepfakes too is I have a hard time sometimes discerning what is a deepfake versus what is a, you know, photo manipulation or a video manipulation. Maybe, uh, you know, as somebody who's pretty interested in this, can you describe like the deep side of it? What does the deep part of deepfake refer to? Yeah, I, I mean, that's the technology emerged because of an advance in artificial intelligence technology. And I'm something of a technologist, so I stay abreast of these uh, emerging things. But yeah, there's a, a term called deep learning, which has been in the literature for a long time, but it was borrowed by this person who started the movement, who came up with this clever term. And deep fix is really clever. It's like it resonates in some way. It sort of sounds like the deep state, yeah. you know, like it's really like a, it's a clever word. I, I, to be honest, like I've never played around with it. I've never made one. I know there are apps out there that make them. I have this like vague idea of like generative networks that produce them. I have some abstract idea of how they're made, but to be honest, I don't completely know. Yeah, I, I mean, I played around with GANs as well. Um, GAN is, stands for Generative Adversarial Network, which you, people use to build uh, models of stuff. I don't know if I told you this, but I took, I did a thing when the NFT things just happened. I was like screwing around like, oh, what NFT can I make? And I plugged about 50 pictures of Batman into a GAN and called it BatGAN. And uh, it was a it was a photo one, but it was like you know whatever it was fine. Uh, nobody bought it, of course, because you know nobody wants something interesting. <laughs> but uh, uh, I also found one of the things about these deepfakes that's interesting to me is you know we had a lot of Photoshop issues in the past, or I shouldn't say issues. We had a lot of things with Photoshop where somebody would put somebody's face on somebody else, or even videos. One of the things that these deepfakes do really well, and I think can really add a significant believability factor is audio, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I get kind of shocked by is they've taken not only the video and perfectly matched it to their face, but they've taken the audio and they bring in all their voices, a voice, and they're able to use those pieces of voices and pronunciations and make words. Um, there's a guy on YouTube called 30 Hertz. Actually, he goes by 30 and 40 Hertz. I don't know why uh, he goes by both <laughs> voices, both names, but... um. He, just a couple weeks ago, as of this recording, released this recording, which is, he wrote new lyrics for My Name Is with by Eminem um, with now, like things that are happening now, and used an AI to deepfake his voice in here. And I'm going to play you guys one of the um, verses. Hi, kids. Do you like violence? Yeah. Want to see me dye my hair bright green, just like Billy Eilish? So edgy. Want to copy me and do exactly like I did? Yeah. Try lean and get fucked up worse than my life is? Oh, my brain's dead weight. These zanies keep my head straight. But I can't figure out which K-pop girl I want to impregnate. And some random bitch on Twitter said, Your album fucking sucks ass. I think I'd rather listen to Drake instead. Well, since age 12, I felt like I'm someone else. Watching porn on the internet and choking myself with a bell. So, okay. The interesting thing about that to me is, in part, it's his voice, right? They did a really, you know, the AI has done a really good job of grabbing his voice. But the other thing they did there is they clearly captured his lyrical voice, right? And the idea, um, whether or not you believe that Eminem's, you know, especially, you know, early 2000s lyrics are good. And a lot of times they're misogynistic and a bunch of other problems. But they captured how Eminem sounds both in his actual audio and with the sense of, what he would actually say, right? And I think this is where this kind of crossover is getting really fascinating and weird because 
that's where identity gets mixed into what you can do with technology, right? Yeah, it is like I've I've seen the software. There's a handful of startups out there that are producing this, and also like it, it was released part of an Adobe's audio editing suite that you can do this. But I know how it works. You upload like 30 minutes of someone speaking or singing, and then through the magic of AI, it somehow you know develops a library in a sense of that person, and then you can just type in anything, and it will say it. And it's really freaky when you first see it. And it's another one of those things where it's like, whoa. And I agree with you. Like, if it was just, if the thing that emerged was simply just a new kind of video that was face swapped, it'd be one thing. But that the audio came at the same time. And all of a sudden, not only did they look like uh, that real person, it also... It instantly like sounded just like them, and it was unbelievable. And they could, you could make them say anything. And you've maybe seen demos where you can side by side camera, you can move your head back and forth, and the character who would be like Donald Trump moving their head back and forth, and it looks really. And you talk, and it's your voice coming out, but it's in his tone, and it's just it, you can do it in real time um, now, and it's it's amazing and freaky. I mean, a lot of people might see this kind of thing and just go, wow, that's really crazy and freaky, and then kind of move on to their day. Like, what what about this particular technology has gotten you obsessed? Like, what, what, why exactly can't you stop thinking about deepfake? Why can't you stop thinking about deepfakes? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first answer is I'm a, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it's, I'm interested in, like, all attempts at subterfuge and deception. Like, I wrote an entire book about misinformation because of this, right? Like, I was just... I'm interested in like people's attempts to subvert reality. I think that that's that's the, probably the biggest thing. The second thing, though, is that as I've kind of alluded to here, I think it's so interesting that the first time I encountered these, it was like, "Whoa, this seems terrible." And then two months later, I was like, "Ah, this is no big deal." And I think that a lot of people are like that. And I guess what interests me is like it seemed like a microcosm of how society handles new technology. Mm. But I'm not sure if that's true. Like mm. I'm, I'm generally interested in like other people's reaction to them. I Like I'm in that person like if you talk to me at a party, I'm going to like bring up like this subreddit with these deep fakes on it and ask, you know. Have you seen this newest one of like they put Tupac into SNL? You know, it's like you know, like I'm that kind of person who goes crazy over it. Yeah, yeah. So the, I, I'm interested in as like a social phenomena, primarily. Uh, I'm also interested in like the tech. Like it's something happened at some moment, or just like everything leveled up, right? It yeah. was like it was, it was like you could kind of do this before, but all of a sudden it was like whoa, it got really good, and. I occasionally get run into people who are like, who will say things like, oh, you can still tell they're fake. And then I'll like, you know, dig around YouTube and I'll find like the Emma Stone one and I'll go, you cannot tell this. This looks real. And then I convince them pretty quickly. So, yeah, I, I do have a strange obsession with it. Um, I still spend a lot of time on that subreddit looking for new ones and it still fascinates me. One of the things that I think is, and I lived to this earlier too, is the idea of identity with these too, right? Because I, I was thinking last night about that show Years and Years. Did you watch Years and Years on HBO? Loved it, yeah. So, you know, that the daughter 
decides uh, it's such a fascinating storyline to me because i have daughters but the daughter the teenage daughter decides she wants to be like uh, by the way i've only seen the first three episodes because i i stopped watching it because it was too depressing to me overall um i need to go back and finish it but so maybe something happens in the storyline that i don't know so don't tell me about it but the daughter decides that she wants to be essentially post-human she wants to live a, a potentially a digital only life and you start to think about things like deepfakes and how in real time, like you're saying, you can really activate and become something else. I think what's interesting is going to be, and I know you're interested in this too, is the idea of like famous IP and different people being able to role play as people in the future. Like, what is that going to mean? And this technology, which we kind of see as scary right now, how much of this technology is going to be part of our culture in the future is really interesting to me because I believe that whether you're role playing as Emma Stone or if you're role playing as some like, you know, tiger creature with like crazy antenna, it's a similar sort of technology that's going to allow you to be somebody besides yourself. And in doing it in real time is also an interesting thing, too. I think that the Hollywood part of it is ultimately like where I get really, really interested in. I think it's fascinating that the technology emerged at the same time where Hollywood shifted toward depending on your view of like of of the current state of Hollywood producing these like infinite reiterations of franchises and reboots and cinematic universes and basically IP right things that are were developed 20 40 60 years ago redone and re, reformatted over and over again marvel cinematic universe being the quintessential case but everything like Game of Thrones is going to have like seven babies soon and there's going to be all these spinoffs. And that that really represents the future of entertainment. And how I think this ties to deep fakes is like each of those characters is IP and they're valuable in their representation at the moment. So the scenario I always present is I'm pretty sure that at some point there will be an actor or actress who wins an Oscar who is dead, who has been recreated through deep fakes. If that sounds like hyperbolic, what I'd suggest to you is like just kind of like look at the list of all the things that have been deep faked already, and there's a ton of them out there. Hollywood is already doing, already doing this. Like People forget that The Irishman, that award-winning Oscar movie with uh, De Niro and Pacino and Joe Pesci, that has deep fakes all over it. They're de-aged a ton in that movie. And I think that that's going to just become way more common. And the, the scenario I always come up with is I think that there will be a point where one of the Game of Thrones uh, spinoffs, they want to bring back Daenerys Targaryen as her as young. And it could be in like 40 years from now. Yeah, I was going to say, is, that, is this like the 2070 Game of Thrones reboot number four? <laughs> It will be. It's way down the line. People love that young character, right? Riding the dragon that first moment, everything was great. And Amelia Clark will be too old, maybe dead, right? And they'll want to bring her back. They want to bring back that character. And they will have the IP to do it. There's a whole bunch of legal questions about using her face that I'm not wise enough to answer. But I think, I know a little, I've talked to some entertainment lawyers about this there are contracts out there that are being written that hand over your face along with your you know likeness and so in legal contracts and so everything's gonna get really interesting and there's gonna be the thing further down the road where like we continue making movies with people that are dead i i'm convinced that they'll in 30 years they're gonna make another tom hanks movie when he's not around 
It just seems to make sense. Like, people will miss Tom Hanks. They can create him perfectly. He's already been in movies where he's, like, you know, jumped around in time and space. And so it makes sense already. And so, yeah, I just, I think actors are going to become superfluous to the whole thing. It's like, they'll we'll just scan their faces in and we'll just go with it. Like, we'll make the movie. We just need you to sign this little contract and you barely have to even be there. You ever seen that video on YouTube of Gwyneth Paltrow? She's she's in some cooking show with John Favreau, and John Favreau mentions, "Hey, you remember that time we were making that Spider-Man movie?" And Gwyneth Paltrow goes, uh, "What? I've never been in a Spider-Man movie." And John Favreau goes, "Yeah, you were." We and she cannot remember that she was in a Spider-Man movie. We weren't in Spider-Man. Yes, we, yes, we were. Homecoming. You were in Spider-Man. No. Yeah. I was in Avengers. No, you Avengers. were in Spider-Man also. It's what? become... Remember Spider-Man at the end and and, the, and and Tom Holland's there and you're going to walk out and do a press conference and I oh, give you the ring? yes. That was Spider-Man. That was Spider-Man? <laughs> oh, my God. Of course she was. Yeah. And it's laughable and you kind of make fun of, of Gwyneth Paltrow for it. But at the same time, that's how movies get made now. So they show up on set for three days Three days that she apparently forgot. Probably while she was shooting one of the other Avengers movies at the same time, right? Yeah, so she just totally. walked over in the same character. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't need her around that much. It's like you got everything scanned in. Uh, it doesn't look like a movie. It's like a gr- weird green screen that you're on. And it's like you just say a few lines and you walk off. You don't even know. And so I think I, I think that's the future of acting for a lot of these people. Is there gonna It's going to be their likeness reproduced in franchises. And that's it. That's crazy. Uh, hey, so we're going to bring on our expert as, as per the format of our show. His name is Henry Odger, and he's an expert on deepfakes. He's from the UK, um, and this was somebody that you suggested. What do you want to know from Henry? Like, where do you want to go deeper on this that you feel like you want some information filled in for you? Well, the first one is like, you know, I have the, the vague wherewithal to make these, but I really don't know. I haven't made one. I know that there's uh, libraries, and I know there's even like apps out there that make them. And so I'd like to know more just about the process and how hard it is and how good they are once you make them with this app. Are they as convincing as the ones that I see on Reddit? That's the first thing. The second thing is I'm curious about the general flow of how society came to accept these and if it mimics the thing that I described, which was, I call it WTF to meh. Like, it went from, oh, God, this is terrible, to, ah, this is just Photoshop overnight. Yeah. Like, it just felt so fast. And I just think that that's interesting. And I'm curious if, like, maybe he went through it feeling the same way or if, he, or if he's still freaked out about it and thinks that, like, these things could bring an end to the world. And then finally, like, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, like, this Hollywood entertainment question. And it is the thing that I bring up with people at parties all the time. And I'm curious of, like, someone who has more expertise in the area, if they have thoughts about what all this means for the future of entertainment. Great. I, I'm actually also interested in something I saw in doing some research here, which is the term shallow fakes. Have you heard about shallow fakes? I have. It's a new variation on this. And I kind of want to hear what his definition of it is. So that we kind of see what the difference between a shallow fake and a deep fake is and kind of get a sense of like what it means to have each of those things happen. Yeah, that sounds great. Great. Well, we'll be right back with Henry and Rex. Way too interested. 
All right, we will be right back with our expert interview. But before we do, I wanted to take a quick second. Normally, this is where uh, the ad in the show would go. I don't have ads because I'm just starting and I may never. Who knows? It's the beginning of a podcast. But I want to take this time to recommend some books. There are a series of books I have on my shelf that I've purchased, not just as books that I've read and read multiple times, all of these but books that I find inspiring and books that I hope that you might find inspiring as well. Sometimes these books are really hard to find in our lives, but I, and I often love hearing what other people's books are that are, that are inspiring to them. Um, so if you have them, please tweet at me with them because I love reading these books and finding my own versions or finding my books that I like too. Today's book is slightly unusual for me. It's a biography, and I really don't read a lot of biographies. I read a fair amount of nonfiction, but not a lot of biographies. But this is a biography of a, of a figure that I've been a fan of and kind of creatively idolized for a long time. It's Jim Henson. Jim Henson, who was a creator of The Muppets and Sesame Street and a bunch of other incredibly um, amazing things. This is a book by Brian J. Jones, and it's basically kind of his life story. And sometimes these books can feel kind of heavy and drag you down and and be like, well, that's a, a significant amount of, of reading for, for one person. But this book never felt that way. It also gave me some really good insights in just how to feel and live a creative life and and know that it's a give and take and that there's lots of stuff you're going to do in your life and to kind of continue to be working on it along the way. So I can't recommend it more highly. It's called Jim Henson, The Biography by Brian J. Jones. Brian J. Jones is also on Twitter, um, fun follow. So go do that. And here, let's get back to the show. Um, Henry Azure, our deepfake expert, is about to join with Rex Horgatz. All right, welcome back to Way Too Interesting. Um, we are joined now by our other guest. Um, and just to remind everybody, this show is about uh, somebody who's super interested in something, and then we bring on an expert to kind of help fill in information. Today, we're joined by Henry Adger. Henry, why don't you introduce yourself and kind of tell us a little bit about what your background is? Sure, yeah. So I guess I can say that I'm an expert in deepfakes and synthetic media. Perfect. This is a topic. Uh, yeah. Do we? Are you sure you're real? Do we know that you're real? <laughs> yeah, that's the question I ask myself most days at the moment um, with the whole COVID situation. Um, but yeah, no, I'm a I'm an expert in deepfakes and synthetic media. I've been researching the topic since it first emerged in uh, late 2017, um, and have done quite extensive research on the um, on the space. Um, primarily through uh, my role as head of research at the world's first deepfake detection company. Great. And before I kind of let Rex go, um, what is the first deepfake you remember seeing? Um, And the other question that kind of came up in our other thing is when we call it deepfake, it comes from the name, the word deepfake. Like, what is the first deepfake you remember seeing? And then is that different than what we had seen before? So... I mean, it's quite unpleasant, to be honest, but the first deepfake I remember seeing was on the original subreddit when I was doing research on this space, as I, as I did. And the first deepfakes where the term was officially coined came from Reddit, where there was a, an existing community of people who used kind of traditional Photoshop tools to superimpose celebrities' faces on pornographic images. And then one day, this new subreddit emerged called R Deepfakes with a user called UDeepfakes who let everyone know that he'd created using open source libraries of software, a new tool for synthetically swapping faces, not just in images, but also in videos. So the first deepfakes that I saw were rather shockingly on these subreddits, um, where a lot of these female celebrities were non-consensually being swapped into pornographic footage. But I think as you guys probably have discussed, you know, the term was originally coined exclusively to refer to those pornographic uses. 
But since then, in the three years or so since that first use case emerged, deepfakes now refers to a much broader range of uses and applications of synthetic media. All right, Rex, go for it. Your experience mimics mine. I was an early consumer of that subreddit. And uh, I don't know if there's a canonical firstness to the whole thing, but I think the one I remember is the Daisy Ridley one. And it was it was truly disturbing from both like the, well, somebody de- definitely did not consent to this aspect, but also, whoa, that's realistic. How did they do that aspect? And so that's, I guess that's my, my first question is really, is that right? Like, did everyone else experience it the same way that, like, it was just like this moment where, whoa, this is much more accurate, better, and was it simply just like the technology leveled up and that's what happened? And what was that moment exactly? Like, did I experience it the same way as like everyone else did? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and I think it kind of both applies to that existing moment where you and I is kind of, I guess, researchers on disinformation and, and malicious uses of artificial intelligence, which is how I first emerged, uh, how I first found out about it. You know, we probably just found it in a similar way, which is, as you kind of mentioned, the technology um, behind synthetic media and deepfakes has been developing since about 2015, um, maybe even a bit earlier. And kind of as as it happens with academic and industry research, it trickles down. So what first kind of is contained within, you know, academic computer science labs or, or kind of, yeah, industry industry um, labs starts to become open sourced, starts to become something that people can replicate, you know, amateur hobbyists and people like this. Um, and especially through um, kind of these open source libraries of code that Google and other platforms offer, people can start cobbling together pieces of software in a way that previously they couldn't. And, you know, that's how deepfakes as we first emerged, um, how we first saw them emerged. One of the interesting things about that subreddit early on was that it wasn't just a, a library of instances. It was also like a how-to forum. There was GitHub libraries out there you could download. And there's a lot of like Q&A type stuff. That subreddit eventually got banned, understandably, but it reemerged as, I think, uh, safe for work deepfakes, it's now called. Sort of. On Reddit, deepfakes and deepfake creators kind of recreated the subreddit in a safer work capacity, but the original R deepfake subreddit went underground. So that just started emerging uh... on non-Reddit forums, new dedicated, like essentially hubs, like as we see with more conventional pornography. So a lot of the community moved into the kind of darker spaces online. Ah, so well, you know a darker part of the internet that I don't. That's good to know. <laughs> there's, there's, there's always worse. There's always um, worse, exactly. <laughs> it can always get darker. And so I guess that's my next question is, I have some technical wherewithal. I write code and stuff, but I've never played around with this. I have this vague idea that there are these apps out there that I've never installed. But, uh, you know, I see the outcome of them. I, I see these things being produced all the time. And I'm kind of wondering, like, how hard it is how much time would I have to put in to insert uh, Emma Stone into Lord of the Rings? You know what I mean? Like these these outrageous things you see. Would it, would it take me a few hours on this FaceTime? One of these. Or what, what, what are the, I think one of the names of the app is Deep Fake Deep Face Lab. I think is one of them. Would it take me like a little amount of time, or would I like have to spend hundreds of hours to do this? 
Yeah. So in terms of creating deepfakes, that's one of the areas that over the last three years, we've seen the most dramatic change. Because as you first mentioned, right, there was the first um, use on Reddit was accompanied by a really complex like guide how to use it. And you had to have some kind of background understanding of code to, to use it properly. Typically, you had to kind of like patch parts together yourself. Whereas if you fast forward to today, you're absolutely right. There's Deepface Lab, which is the most popular open source creation tool. And people who now use that as kind of professional deepfake creators and hobbyists, people who are now working with VFX studios, they have really mastered the art of using that tool. And to create a really high quality deepfake, like some of the ones you've probably seen on YouTube, you know, that does take a lot of time, not just in terms of like expertise, but like training the model, right? So for example, the really famous Tom Cruise deepfakes that recently went viral on TikTok, the guy who created those, a guy called Chris Ume, he trained that model for I think two months to get a face swap of that quality. And that was before he then did manual post-production work on the final output. So high quality deepfakes still require like a lot of expertise and a lot of time. Can I ask a quick can I ask a tech question, Henry? When you with the Tom Cruise one particularly, he used famously used a Tom Cruise impersonator, right? And then put his face over it. Are we still, from a technical perspective, are we still pretty much in the face-only perspective? Or is there a possibility that deepfakes can go? Because if I think of Tom Cruise, like there's a ton of movies out there which have him doing his thing. Can they do that yet? Or are we still a ways away from full-body deepfake? So full-body synthetic media is already here in a very crude form. So that's one other thing with, with deepfakes is like certain forms of deepfakes in synthetic media are more advanced than others or are more accessible than others. And body pose transfer, as it's generally called, there are apps. I think one is called Jiggy, which you can use this for, which, you know, you get a picture or a video of Bruno Mars dancing and then you kind of upload a picture of yourself and it animates your photo dancing like Bruno Mars, which for someone like me is very useful because I can't dance to save my life. Are you telling me that Jib Jab was the first deep fake? Is that where this is going? Jib <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jab has the Jib Jab gets the, the deep fake moniker. Anyway, the, sorry. The dodgy Christmas card my mum <laughs> yeah, exactly. made six years ago with us as elves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so body pose transfer and synthetic body movements are, again, it's coming. It's just at a much more kind of nascent stage than, say, face swapping, which is by far the most predominant form. And face swapping, you know, in a much in a cruder form is accessible now by smartphones with one image, you know. So face swapping in particular is super accessible now, but the high quality of any kind of deepfake is still very much a preserve of like VFX experts or people who have learned over years to use these uh, open source tools very well. I think my next question is uh, I'm looking for people who maybe had a similar path uh, of understanding this as me. I think a lot of people, as I understand, when the first time they see this, they are kind of blown away too. And I was talking to Gavin about it and I said, I described the process as WTF to meh, meaning I went, like, just in a matter of weeks or months, I went from, oh my God, this is terrible for society to kind of going, ah, is this really that bad? You know, within a very short amount of time, I was thinking, this isn't really that different than Photoshop. And if you know like the history of creative media, you know that there was lots of freakouts about Photoshop at the time too, right? There was about its end to the idea of verity and truth. I guess I'm wondering what your view of it is. Are you still 
in WTF or are you more in meh like me? Like, do you, <laughs> are you worried? Because there was a lot of scary stuff at first that was proposed. And now I'm, I found myself not worried. So it's a really interesting framework to look at it from. And I think from my perspective, having kind of been an expert on this for a while and talking to the media about it, you know, at the moment, once every couple of months, a really good deep date will come out, which will scare everyone. They will have that WTF moment and people who perhaps haven't heard of them before will see that first Tom Cruise deepfake and be like, oh my God, this is so good and it's so easy and this is going to be the new age of fake news, right? And I think the media really capitalize on that quite visceral experience, that very personal experience of being fooled by a deepfake, right? It's that kind of thing that a lot of people quite quickly panic about. And in my research, that's one thing that I try to I've tried to do, you know, um, is to delve into what is actually happening now and dispel like the hypotheticals of like, well, this might be coming and actually seeing what are we dealing with right now? What is the real problem? And on that framework, we haven't seen a huge amount of change from the last three years in terms of threat vectors or like different kinds of attacks. It's still the vast majority is non-consensual pornography, which is awful. And we need to do more to combat like it's it's a problem which is thousands of women are being harmed by but um you know the kind of the fears of, of deep fakes in in you know enhanced disinformation campaigns fears of deep fakes undermining um like evidential proceedings in courtrooms things like this are still they're still yet to materialize in a in a like a meaningful sense having said that I still think that we do need to be worried about it. I think it is something we need to be very, um, very, what's the word, um, vigilant about. Because I think the Photoshop analogy is a good one, right? Like Photoshop scared a lot of people, rightly, as rightly as you said. But now kind of like it's, it's just ubiquitous. It's just a part of our media diet in a way that I think most people don't realize. Like how many people don't know that the images they see are photoshopped in subtle ways? Right. How much is kind of filtering and, and that kind of culture impacted us? And I think with Photoshop, like even crude edits, even like really crude video edits, like slowing down audio or speeding up um, video speed has contributed to disinformation that's gone viral in the US and around the world. And it's caused deaths in India. It's caused massive problems in places like Brazil. France as well has had some really big problems with it. So I think there's a middle ground we need to take, which is like we need to be aware of the threats that are emerging. We need to be aware of how perhaps we're not quite as infallible as we like to think a lot of the time. But that doesn't mean we should be losing our heads and panicking. It means kind of understanding where we're going and what we need to do before it's a problem to make sure that it doesn't become one. That's interesting because so much of the stuff I consume in this space is like, here's a video where like every person on the screen is Dr. Phil. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it's like and, or like, we're going to take that SNL sketch where Trebek and Sean Connery, but we're actually going to face swap them with their actual real faces and it's make it absurd. Like, it's all this like joke stuff. And I've heard the stat that like somehow the, the vast majority of deepfakes that are created are revenge porn effectively, right? Like that it's like that was my my research. Yeah, 96 percent. Yeah. And it's like I know I know that that's out there, that it's young dudes who do something bad to their ex-girlfriend. They gather up their, you know, iPhone library of pictures and make these videos of them. But that's not what like trickles over into like the media world. And it does not it's not what ends up on Reddit. It's probably on those dark corners of the internet that you're on that I, I'm not part of. But yeah, there, in the last election, there was this example where Nancy Pelosi video appeared uh, 
on Facebook that it was not a case of an actual deep fake, but sort of seemed like one. It was just an effect applied to it. And they sl- just slowed down the, the recording and it slurred her speaking and it made her sound drunk. It had a deep fake-like effect. And I think there's a lot of stuff out there like that. And Gavin, didn't you have a question that was like related to some of these? Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Henry, was that I read in, in a couple of the articles that you had been quoted in about this idea called a shallow fake. And I really wanted to know what, what the definition of shallow fake is. And does that is it just another term for manipulated media that, work, that removes the, the deep learning part of it? Yeah, that, that's a great question and a really important part of the puzzle that I think people need to be aware of is that deep fakes fit into the kind of manipulated media heading, but there are other kinds of manipulated media, right, that come before it, you know, Photoshop being one of them, but also shallow fakes. And, and shallow fakes more or less refers to a crudely edited piece of audiovisual media, which uses techniques, as, as I mentioned a minute ago, right? Like, yeah, slowing down audio speed to make Nancy Pelosi sound drunk in that video, which was then shared by the president at the time. Or in the case of um, the uh, Washington Post's um, White House correspondent, Jim Acosta, speeding up the video to make it look like he violently kind of wrenched its microphone away oh, from right. the uh, White House intern, which the White House then used to justify revoking his pass. So those are classic examples of shallow fakes. But then you've also got, you know, just out of context media, you know, there's that famous photo of like a shark swimming along, uh, swimming next to a car in like flooded Florida, which gets shared every time, um, you know, there's there's hurricanes or there's flooding. That's Photoshop. That's a really crude Photoshopped image of, of that shark. But then you've also got, you know, every time there's kind of, again, disasters when people are panicking when people aren't thinking critically um you have videos of bombings or you have videos of of disasters which are taken from completely different countries and times so shallow fakes really just is a broad term to describe those cruder forms of media manipulation that don't as you said use any deep learning any sophisticated artificial intelligence they are very crude but work really well and require much less effort right now. Which is why, again, some of the fears that deepfakes are here right now and they're causing really big problems are overblown. But is also why we can see why if deepfakes become as sophisticated as, as it looks like they will, they will be an incredibly powerful tool for these similar bad actors to misuse on a scale we haven't seen before. So yeah, that's kind of the, the rough framework. Do you ever think of like when I when I hear deep fakes now, I think what Rex was saying before about this idea that deep fakes can be anything from, you know, behind the scenes of a entertainment property, revenge porn, or, you know, at a scariest level, like a the world leader being saying something that they're not saying. It sometimes feels like there's a like a little bit of a boogeyman factor going on with the term deep fake. Does that come across and like and is it? Do you like the fact that deepfakes is now referring to this kind of like the the world at large kind of believes it to be a very negative term? I think right. Is it? I would assume that that's the case. Yeah, that's a again really good question. Um, I think broadly speaking, my my approach to deepfakes and synthetic media, which is a more neutral term to use uh, to describe the kind of broader uses of the technology, my attitude is trying to inject nuance into this conversation. So there are really awful uses of synthetic media or deepfakes, which we need to be worried about, we need to pay attention to. But also, there are lots of uses of synthetic media which promise to revolutionize our world in the commercial space, in potentially even socially beneficial ways. And this technology is not going away. It's becoming increasingly adopted by big players and is maturing. Um, And we need to prepare for a future where synthetic media is playing a really big role. Part of that may well be, as you you alluded to, 
thinking about what we understand deepfake to mean. So some people think deepfake kind of refers to AI-generated synthetic media that is created with the intent to deceive for malicious purposes. So as you said, you know, it has got a negative connotation, primarily because it evolved exclusively from its use in non-consensual pornography, right? That's how the story first broke. That's how people first came to know of it. But then again, there are also people who are like, yeah, I'm a deepfake artist. This is what I do. And they've kind of embraced it. And they're trying to use um, the term in a more neutral sense. The trend I see, again, talking to the people who are looking to commercialize this technology for the entertainment sector or looking to use this technology in advertising and things like this, they tend towards synthetic media precisely because it doesn't have that negative connotation attached. But it, you are absolutely right. Deepfakes have become a, a boogeyman that a lot of people are really worried about without necessarily understanding the full nuance of what it refers to. And while we do need to be concerned and we should worry about certain use cases, there is a much broader kind of change in the zeitgeist almost of, of media going on here, which needs a much more balanced and broader conversation to fully understand its significance. On that same theme, I'm curious if you have any theories about why we never had the dystopian moment. Instantly, you can think of the worst possible thing happening. And, it would, and especially around the, you know, the 2020 election cycle, there was a lot of hype around something terrible was going to spread on Facebook and it's going to change the course of the election. We're going to blame deepfakes for electing the wrong person. And that never happened. And you've, you've done a good job in realigning my thinking that there is a bunch of bad stuff that still happens. and You should still be aware of that. But at the same time, the worst possible stuff never happened. Or even like not even like the second tier stuff I'd say never really happened, and I'm curious if you have like have theories as to why it hasn't happened. Is it the video isn't good enough? Is it that people aren't malicious as we thought they were, or is it some other reason? Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing for me here would be that it hasn't happened yet, right? Like, I mean, the time frame that people are continually saying is the next election, the next you know, event. And people will continue to say that until it happens. I remember in the, in the midterms, um, people were saying, you know, uh, deepfakes are going to be a big problem here, and they weren't. And in general, you know, yeah, we haven't seen at least a confirmed case of deepfakes in a political context around the world being used with devastating effect, as you said, kind of making someone appear that they've said something they haven't, or um, putting them in a place that they weren't. It hasn't materialized yet that I'm aware of. We have seen like hints of it, though. So, for example, in the, before the midterms, Russian interference used um, the idea of deepfakes in a fake um, Marco Rubio quote to say the Democrats were spreading um, deepfakes of Republican candidates. Um, <laughs> we, we we've also seen with the um, the dossier that was uh, apparently uh, leaked from a, an intelligence officer for Hunter Biden in this election, the apparent agent that leaked these documents was using a style GAN image. And that's an image which is right. entirely synthetically generated of a person who doesn't exist. So we, we have seen, we're seeing hints of how synthetic media and deepfakes are kind of entering in the political sphere. But I think the biggest impact that we've seen is how just the idea alone is causing a massive destabilization of, of political discourse around the world. And I mean, specific to the US, I would say we are seeing increasingly on places like 4chan and 8chan, like, you know, QAnon people saying that like Trump saying I've conceded or Trump um, saying that the rioters at the Capitol were wrong to do what they did are now saying that that can't be real. That must be a deep fake. I think that's really interesting that in some ways, the, the the thing that it's done to society 
that's worse than anything else is that it's made real documents, real media seem more suspicious. Like that it, it's Absolutely. the larger societal effect is something about a larger sense of distrust about things that are real, but people think could have been manipulated. Uh, absolutely. It, what what deepfakes have done in this kind of like weird perverse relationship, which is the more awareness that's raised of deepfakes, which is kind of important, right? That people know the technologies out there, the more it kind of poisons the well of what people think is now possible and how that impacts their perception of authentic media, particularly if there are cognitive biases that predispose them to want to believe a certain piece of authentic media isn't real. So you have deepfakes not just making fake things look real, but also providing a plausible way to dismiss real things as fake. And, you know, just an example, this happened several times around the world, but particularly in kind of less economically developed countries. But with the current situation going on in Myanmar at the moment, there was a a, um, a confession that was released of one of the ministers saying that he um, colluded on crimes with um, the president or the prime minister. And this video was seized on by protesters saying this is a deepfake, this isn't real, this is not him actually confessing. This is created by the military to try and you know uh, incriminate him. And I did analysis on this, as did some of my, my friends and colleagues who are specialists, and we found no evidence of manipulation. It's not impossible that it happened, but if it did, it must have been an incredibly good job. But the narrative had spread that it was fake. Huh. And people had just assumed and believed deeply that this was not real because he could not have said that. And he must have been, you know, he must have been faked to in order to get that confession. And so that narrative is is happened in in in, in Gabon in Africa, where um, you know there was almost an a, well, there was an attempted coup because people didn't believe that the president was alive anymore, and that a video released of him to confirm his his health was a deep fake. That's the biggest problem in politics we're seeing with deep fakes right now. And I think these uses will come. And I think your other question, right, was like, why hasn't it happened yet? I think you you touched on it yourself. Like realism is not sufficiently good to kind of pass. I think convincingly, um, without a lot of work and expertise. And also, let's say if a state actor were to try and do this, they'd likely have to create their own sort of model to do it well. And as soon as that model is released in the wild, then people will understand how that model works and be able to pick up on the fingerprints that it leaves behind on the on the deepfakes it generates. So one of the things I, I watched recently was that Netflix documentary about art fraud, right? About, and about how the techniques of fight. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Obviously, seeing if something is real is the most important thing in the world in this in this situation. What are fingerprints that do get left by the materials now so that you can prove that they're fake? Is there a specific thing you look for? Yeah. So there, there are some. Um, and it, again, it depends on the kind of media you're looking at, right? Like, the, you know, obviously with, with certain images using certain generators, they'll leave behind different things to say a, a moving face swap on a video. Um, but some key ones you can look for are things like, um, you know, mapping of the face when the face or the head is moving in different dimensions. So typically face swapping models are really bad at like getting faces if you're like looking down or you're looking up or you're, t you're turning from side to side. Same with things like occlusion of the facial area. So if someone, you know, is smoking a cigarette or taking off their glasses or something like this, typically that's where you'll get flickering of the face that was, you know, originally kind of underneath even though there isn't a face underneath it's a it is a composite thing so th those are some that you can get in videos same with things like blending of the skin tones can be quite a good uh, telltale sign 
as can things like with the synthetic images, these style gan images, you get visual artifacts. These are like kind of things that shouldn't be there, especially when they're trying to recreate things like jewelry, like earrings kind of turn into these weird swirly things. Same again with strands of hair, you get these kind of like weird swirly patterns. So there, there are some telltale signs, but the problem is, you know, someone may listen to this podcast and hear these telltale signs and come away from it saying, right, I now know, I know, know what to look for. Um, and in six months, those things may have been trained out of these models um, and they may have improved to the point they're no longer there. But then it's not going to be necessarily a, a timely podcast reminder to them that suddenly these things are no longer right. no longer in these uh, images or videos. So I'm really hesitant to kind of say with confidence, these are things, if, if you don't see these, it's not a deep fake. Right. Because, you know, that gives false confidence. And indeed, we've seen how false confidence in deepfake detection tools with this Myanmar case I just mentioned, these tools, I'm pretty sure got it wrong. And they said confidently, this is a deepfake, which is really dangerous in a political crisis like that. Being able, Having people falsely having confidence that something is real or fake could be the difference between an attempted coup or a election being declared void. So it's something that is it's a really difficult problem there are some signs now, but there's no guarantee they'll be there in six months, in a year, you know, maybe even sooner. I'm curious, has anyone taken some of the best examples of Hollywood? Like, uh, example I cited earlier was the the Irishman with uh, De Niro and Pacino in it, and, you know, a Netflix movie that won a bunch of awards. It had a, t- a ton of de-aging in it. Has anyone take and, and used deepfake-like technology? Has anyone on the research side taken things like that and said and found if they can detect the seams of manipulation in it you know what i mean like that's the example of like the best high tech applied to deep fakes and the most deceptive and uh, and i'm I'm curious if like researchers are even are able to identify something that good as in our research is able to detect in an automatic sense the uh the, the manipulation in the Irishman or like... Yeah, can they see the artifacts of manipulation within... Within that? the original version um, that was released on Netflix. Yes. Yeah, so so that's that's an interesting case, the Irishman, because a lot of the VFX community and a lot of the deepfake community thought they did a really bad job. <laughs> and actually... Really? Yeah. Um, so there was actually a couple of videos out there of people who have tried to recreate scenes from the Irishman using face swap of younger footage from you know, when De Niro and, you know, um, oh, fascinating. When, when they were younger to, to, to do a better job than the synthetic de-aging that these manual click by click VFX artists have done. So, um, and you know, that's been done with Star Wars as well with uh, Princess Leia, with Carrie Fisher, who was, you know, um, yeah. put in Grand Moff Tarkin, the, uh, I think I can't remember the name of the actor, um, but you know, it's been done quite a few times by deepfake artists where they've said, actually, yeah, this isn't that good. I can do this better on a gaming PC in my mom's basement. Yeah, that's that's interesting because Gavin shared with me a video of, um, like, this is a whole subgenre within uh, YouTube of graphic artists, people uh, who do this work in Hollywood, taking old movies and making the the, the effects better. What was the one you shared with me, Gavin? It was, it was uh, the it was the Scorpion King. They redid the Rock's face as he yeah. came out. I will have to remember what the YouTube. I know the scene you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about? And the original is so bad. It hasn't aged well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so bad. 
And then they have this close-up shot of the rock's face. And I think there's a great discovery that happened right then where everybody realized the human face is way more difficult than just having CG stuff in the scene. The expressions don't seem to kind of like sync up at any one particular point, causing the face to look a little unnatural. Yeah, like one half of his face <laughs> smiles and the other half of his face is frowning right here. Happy rock. Angry rock. <laughs> and that's the thing, and it's like the lips will like adjust before the eyes adjust, I think. That's what it seemed like a little bit. Everything just feels like it's not quite synced up. But they did a great job with these guys, the, this, this channel basically, they're VFX artists, and they go in and they take the original scene, which got panned hugely, and they use deepfake technology to change it, and it's incredibly better. And this is four or five guys and not an unpowerful computer, but like this is not ILM. You know what I mean? This is this is a pretty small working and they're not working from the original files either. You know what I mean? They're just literally slapping on this thing on top of the actual master. It's interesting there's a whole genre of this out there that like people are, oh, I can do better than Hollywood can and I can make this, I can improve this. I, I don't know who specifically the channel you're referring to. I imagine it might be Corridor Digital who have done some amazing work with deepfakes. They're, they're VFX specialists and they kind of made some deepfakes of Keanu Reeves and they did a, an original one of Tom Cruise, which wasn't as good as the more recent versions. But um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I know a lot of the people in the community who make deepfakes professionally and they started off doing this as kind of like a, as a kind of like a fun hobby, you know, on YouTube and they kind of like, oh, I've got a hundred thousand views on this video. That's great. And they were just kind of doing it for fun. Now these people are being, you know, consulted or they're consulting or providing their work to, yeah, massive studios like you know the south park creators hired a load of deepfake artists for an entirely new studio for an entirely new deepfake satire show they've created which they said was you know their first video released on youtube they said must have been the most expensive youtube video ever made like these people are artists um and there are a lot of people who are really good at using this technology who use it for awful awful purposes with non-consensual deepfake you know pornography or image abuse but there is, a, it's what I meant earlier when I said that this technology is maturing. There is a respected growing number of people who recognize the creative potential of deepfakes and synthetic media, who, as you said, have de-aged people in old films or have colorized even, you know, new films using similar kinds of technologies, um, colorized old films, sorry. We have seen a new film featuring James Dean, a synthetic version of James Dean has been commissioned. That's going to be coming out. You know, a French soap opera, an actress got COVID, no problem. You deepfake her into the scene. <laughs> you know, Snoop Dogg records an advert for the um, the company Just Eat, which is like a, I guess, like Grubhub, I think you guys have in the States or something, you know, like takeaway service. And he records the advert once, but they want to repurpose it for another region of the world. No problem. You just hire a company to synthetically change his lip movements to match a new, a new audio track. This is truly going to revolutionize all of our kind of content creation and content consumption. And I think, you know, there are some really interesting interesting questions about like the ethical, ethically ambiguous use cases, right? Like not just the really explicitly malicious ones like disinformation or, or non-consensual deepfake pornography, but the use cases where you are synthetically resurrecting someone and you have to ask questions like, do I need consent to do this? Can I meaningfully consent to my likeness being replicated? In what cases don't you need consent? You got into my third big question without even me getting to ask it. And it really was like about the future of this for entertainment. I had this term that I like to use in these conversations where I 
corner people at parties and <laughs> show them this deep, deep fake, which happens a lot. Or I, I call it the eternal celebrity. Mm. That it seems really interesting to me that this technology has emerged at the same time there's a huge transition going on within Hollywood, within entertainment, that towards the you know, the franchising of everything, like everything now is a reboot or a cinematic universe. And you went through a good list of all of the cases that are happening that are commercially. I think people overlook how much is actually happening right now. And that James Dean thing is like a really good example of, I think, I think that this is coming. I think we're going to start taking old dead people and recreating them. And I think within 20 years, we're going to have somebody win an Oscar who is dead uh, that we've digitally recreated. That's my theory. I'd, I'd take the over-under on 20. <laughs> and so I I guess my, my thing is like, do you think that this is accurate? And I'm, I'm curious if you know any anything about some of the legal stuff. I know that – I think this is true. I think Robin Williams in his will put in that he cannot – have his likeness reused by anyone for any kind of future he saw the deep fake stuff coming and didn't said he wouldn't use it but like i'm curious is that legally binding in 20 years if his kids like want to do it it's like i don't i don't know if you could stop them and Mm. so once you're dead i think it's going to be open game i don't i don't know but even now it's like there's going to be a ton of people who age a ton of actors who are get too old to play the person they played 20 years ago and they're just going to be deep faked into entertainment and we're just going to keep recycling the same characters over and over again does this sound like the future of uh creative media to you um i I mean so i i think this is something that i've been thinking about a lot these kind of gray areas with synthetic media um and i think synthetic resurrection or techromancy which i quite like is another way of talking about it oh yeah it's one of the most interesting areas because as you kind of identified some of the legal tensions, some of these really open questions and kind of fundamentally, again, this is about film stars that we, we love and we know and what well, we think we know anyway, we have this kind of weird parasocial relationship with, you know, these are people who have formed part of our childhoods and films that we love and adore. And, you know, there are some really big questions as you just alluded to, like, as to whether we want this to happen. Like, do we want, you know, Scarlett Johansson to feature in a film in 50 years? And it's not really like, how much of that is actually her? Like, does she still contribute in some way? Is it like her body, but with like the de-aged face? You know, is it a completely new actor? If it's a completely new actor, do they get some credit for that performance? Like, how do we determine who is actually the person you know, for example, with, with deep fakes, one of the really impressive things about face swapping is that it maps the target's um, facial expressions perfectly. So the person who would be having to be the kind of the body double, I guess you could say, or the face double even, would have to be doing a really good job of the expressions and, the, you know, all of the kind of the parts of acting. But at the same time, people like SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, are going to be really wanting to protect the the kind of the, the performance rights and the, the way that if, if your face is used you know, that's a performance that you're giving. Like, you deserve full payment for that performance. You know, they Maybe don't Maybe there's, want... like, a world where, like, it's going to be Andy Serkis and Scarlett Johansson. Do you know what I mean? Or something, because Andy Serkis is famously Gollum, right? And has been getting a ton of... But, like, there may be a, an award that's given to two people. One, the person who's doing the actual motion capture or the the actual acting, and the other person who's, you know, like a posthumous uh, James Dean Academy Award, but then having, see, like, you know... 
Brad Pitt playing that character. Right. That would be such, I mean, obviously Brad Pitt's in his own, he's not going to let his face get swapped out <laughs> by James Dean necessarily, but like that seems like a world where you could have a shared award in, right. in some ways too. I know we got to, we got to wrap up pretty soon here because uh, I mean, um, Henry, you got to, you got to move on to something else, but Hey, um, thank you so much to both Henry and Rex. Um, Henry, I did want to ask you before you go, I'm going to try to do this with all of our guests. Um, what is something that you're way too interested in right now? Is there a specific thing that you can't get out of your brain? Yeah. So I've had a, I'm only, I'm only uh, 27, but I'm having a, a late in, a late in life for me, uh, a discovery of jazz specifically in, in the UK here in South London, there's an exploding jazz scene of these really exciting new uh, young jazz musicians who are doing some really interesting stuff. And I haven't listened to a huge amount of the classics, Miles Davis or the Herbie Hancocks, but these, you know, young, young guys are doing something that kind of taps into a kind of a fascination that I, I didn't know I had with this music. I normally like music that's a bit more um, emotional for me, kind of, um, whereas jazz is technically just blows my mind. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm getting deep into the jazz scene and uh, I, I hope that I will get my way back to the classics someday soon. Do you have a specific artist that we can check out? I would really recommend checking out a guy called Yusuf Days. He he has, I think the album's called Welcome to the Hills, I think. He also did a collaboration last year with an artist called Tom Mish. Um, the album's called What Kind of Music. Both just exceptional records, like real good energy. Like when you need a bit of a perking up in, in lockdown in lockdown summer, you know, that's what that's what I've been using. Amazing. That is fantastic. Well, thanks again uh, for both of you to being here for the original recording. Hopefully, Rex, we got most of your question answered and... I'm going to go learn a whole shitload more about this now because I can't I can't believe the stuff I didn't know about it. So thanks again, everybody. We really appreciate it. And uh, come back for the next episode. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See ya. Well, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for coming and listening. Um, Way Too Interested is produced mostly entirely by me, but I did have some good help along the way. Um, Eric Johnson of Lightning Pod uh, has helped me significantly in getting this show up and running, does the editing on my interviews, and overall is a great, great human being. You should definitely go and find Lightning Pod if you are trying to start a podcast or you need some help making one. Other than that, the Gregory Brothers, um, thank you for making the theme song in this music you hear right now, which I specifically asked for some very uh, easy listening sort of style for the credits. And of course, thank you to my guests this week, Rex Sorgatz and Henry Azur. We had a great time talking deep fakes, and I will see you next week. Oh, also, go to waytoointerested.com, our website. Um, I want to hear from you. If you have a problem with the show, if you think it's interesting, I hope you think it's interesting, or if you have subjects that you're fascinated by, I'm also toying around with the idea of starting a Discord. I would love to start a conversation with you. Um, I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash Gavin Purcell. Pretty active there. Would love to talk more um, with anybody that listened and kind of get some feedback on the show. It's my first time making one of these, so I'm still in the learning stages, but I'm having a good time and I hope to keep it up. Thank you again for listening and please come back again.